do keep that passage open in front of you. Let's pray as we begin. Almighty God, you speak through your word. And we pray that you might speak to us this morning. Help us to see your deep love for those around us. Open our eyes to see all that Jesus has done for us. And open our hearts to the prompting and empowering of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Has your life been changed by Jesus? Do you have friends and family who you'd love to discover his life-changing power? I wonder what you think it would take for you or for those you know to take that step of faith. A dramatic event, spirit-filled preaching or a Christian faithfully explaining the gospel using scripture. The Apostle Paul had an encounter with the risen Jesus that left him in no doubt of the reality of the gospel. We read stories in Acts chapter 2 of Peter preaching to enormous crowds of 3,000 people turning to Jesus. But I suspect that for most of us here, that moment of conviction wasn't dramatic. It probably wasn't the result of fervent preaching at a large evangelistic event. Instead, we probably found Jesus because of the faithful witness of another Christian. And that's what happens in our passage today. The Ethiopian's moment of conversion isn't dramatic. He isn't part of a large crowd. Instead, he meets one faithful Christian. And Luke, who's so far concentrated on the rapid expansion of the church, thinks that this event is so important that he devotes 15 verses to the conversion of one man whose name we don't even know. God can and does use one-to-one conversations to spread the gospel. But I wonder... Is that where evangelism begins to become a bit scary? We hear Richard's call to be disciples who make disciples and we think, that's okay for him. But me? I struggle. I haven't got the right words. Richard doesn't know how closed my friends are. Maybe we just don't know how to turn those conversations to Jesus without the whole thing suddenly starting to sound forced and unnatural. Whether you approach one-to-one evangelism with trepidation or with confidence, this passage contains both encouragement and an example to follow. At a first glance... It's an account of two men, an Ethiopian eunuch and Philip. Philip is someone we first meet in Acts chapter 6, verse 5, where we learn that he's a Grecian Jew 
and he's a man who's full of the spirit and wisdom. And then after our chapter today, we don't meet him again until Acts chapter 21, where he's called Philip the Evangelist. So as we read this passage, surely it's Philip that we need to fix our eyes on. Or is it? Because actually, at the heart of this passage, we can be encouraged because we see God at work. God is the one who plans all the events that we read about. Have a look at verse 26. God sends an angel, and the angel says to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Travelling south is never Philip's idea. Philip's busy doing what we find him doing earlier in the chapter, preaching the gospel in Samaria, performing miraculous signs, seeing people respond with joy. But an angel of the Lord says to Philip, go from a busy road, from a busy city, sorry, to a desert road, and he goes. Angels are rare, even in the Bible, but God can and still does prompt us by his spirit. Philip, quite frankly, has got no idea why God sent him on the road to Gaza, but God knows, and he directs Philip's next move. Look at verse 29. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stand near it. And once the encounter's over, the Ethiopian goes on his way rejoicing, and God takes the initiative again. Verse 39 tells us that the spirit of the Lord takes Philip away so he can continue preaching the gospel. God is in control. He's the one who ensures the right man is on the right road at exactly the right moment. God goes ahead of Philip, and we can have confidence because he does go ahead of us too. And God pushes boundaries, or as Alex said a couple of weeks ago, God has no no no-go zones. Because we don't live in the first century AD, we may well miss the significance of an Ethiopian eunuch turning to Christ. At the start of chapter 8, God uses persecution to spread the gospel to Samaria. And now those boundaries are stretching even further. This man comes from Ethiopia. He's a black African. He's the treasurer of a pagan queen. If you were living in the ancient world, you'd have thought that people who came from Ethiopia literally did live at the ends of the earth. Geographically, Jesus' words in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, are being fulfilled. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. But this incident doesn't just push geographical boundaries. It breaks open religious ones too. Yes, this man is returning from a Jewish festival, but actually he'd have been on the fringes of Judaism. As a castrated male, he wouldn't have been able to take 
take part in full Jewish worship. The regulations in Deuteronomy would have prevented that. But in Isaiah, God promises that his salvation will be for everyone. And here we see the gospel's beginning to move towards the Gentiles. God's promises are being fulfilled. God has no no no-go zones. And God does still break down barriers today. I wonder if we're all guilty at times of thinking that there are people around us who are just beyond the reach of the gospel. At one time, I worked in an office where I sat opposite a woman who, well, her whole lifestyle outside work would have been totally incompatible with a Christian commitment. In the office, she moderated her rather colourful language for my benefit and built a huge barrier of files to shield me from her chain smoking. But that woman is the only person who has ever, totally out of the blue, said to me, Margaret, how did you become a Christian? I don't know what God's done in her life since, but let's be ready for God to send us to unlikely people. Let's pray that he'll be opening hearts. Let's pray that he'll break down the barriers that help that stop us reaching out from that Jenny Lind area of our parish. And God prepares the response. He's not just at work in Philip's life in this passage. He's at work in the Ethiopian's life too. We're used to having more than one copy of the Bible, to being able to read it online whenever we like. But for this man to have a copy of the scroll of Isaiah in his chariot, to be reading it at the very moment that Philip runs up to him, shows God at work. Can it really be a coincidence that he's reading the portion of scripture that speaks of Jesus more clearly than any other in all of the Old Testament? And of all the questions he could have asked, in verse 34, he asks, who's the prophet talking about? It's a question that literally invites the answer, Jesus. And ultimately, it's the Holy Spirit who convicts someone's heart of their need for Jesus. This man's response is instant. It's wholehearted. The great Preacher Spurgeon speaks of a night when he asked himself the question, how did you come to be a Christian? Was it him who found God? But the more he thought about it, the more he realised it was God who prompted him to pray, God who led him to read the scriptures. God was at the bottom of it all. And all he could say as he looked back was, I ascribe my change wholly to God. And I suspect all of us who are Christians could say the same. And we never know what God's doing in someone's life already. Leighton Ford, in his book on evangelism, 
describes an incident where a young pastor led a hardened criminal to Christ. And at the end, the criminal said to the pastor, don't get big-headed. 24 other people have spoken to me about Jesus before you. We never know what God's doing in someone's life. First and foremost, this man's life changes because of the work of God. He loved him enough to ensure that he had a life-changing encounter. And God is still at work in the lives of those we meet. Let's not give up praying for those five people that we're praying for. God is the one who, through the Holy Spirit, can open their hearts to Jesus. But there are two sides to this story. God is at work, but he works through one faithful Christian. We need to be available. God uses Philip, and he still uses individuals to reach individuals. He doesn't need experts. He can use you and me. And yes, I agree, there are parts of this story that are unique. But Philip's readiness to be used by God speaks to each one of us. Philip is obedient. He doesn't once question God. We know from Acts chapter 6 that others see him as spirit-filled. He lives closely to God. He hears God speak and he obeys If you think about it, a desert road is a pretty unpromising place to be sent to. For Philip, it would have been an inconvenient journey of about 60 miles. And I suspect in his mind, Philip was thinking, why ever is God sending me from a thriving ministry to a desert road? It doesn't make sense. But Philip doesn't hesitate. If you look at verse 27, it simply says, so he set out. He runs up to the chariot in obedience to the spirit. It's actually a pretty bold move. He's approaching someone who's an important official. It needs courage. It's been likened to someone who's a nobody having the nerve to approach an important official who's being driven down Whitehall in his chauffeur-driven Rolls Royce. I wonder, though, if we live closely enough to God to know when he's prompting us to do something. And when God does prompt us, do we go with that inner prompting or do we start to question it and think, hmm, have I got it right? Recently, I felt prompted to suggest to someone in my small group that we might read the Bible one-to-one. And if I'm honest, I felt a bit nervous about suggesting it. But the positive response I got told me I had got it right. And actually, those times have been a blessing to me as well as to the person I've been reading it with. Reading the Bible is life-changing, 
Richard is going to begin to encourage us to read the Bible with someone who isn't a Christian. Is that something you're praying about? Are you ready for God to prompt you? And if he does, are you going to have the courage to go with that prompting? And Philip opens up the conversation He doesn't begin by preaching or with clever words. He does what all of us can do. He simply asks a question. The Ethiopian would have been reading aloud. That's what people did in those days. And Philip begins exactly where he is. Look at verse 30. He asks him if he understands what he's reading. And it's an opening that leads the Ethiopian to ask him to explain the text And then to voice the question that's really on his mind. Who is this passage all about? And Philip takes the opportunity. Verse 35 says, Then Philip began. We could translate that verse as, He opened his mouth. And that's often the sticking point for us, isn't it? The thought goes in our mind of what we should say, but we don't actually open our mouths. Or if we do, we talk about church, but we don't actually talk about Jesus. And Jesus is the heart of our message. Philip knows what's important. Verse 35 says he starts with the passage the Ethiopian has opened in front of him, And he tells him the good news about Jesus. All through Acts, that's the message that's preached. Acts 11.20 says they told the Greeks the good news about Jesus. Acts 17.18, Paul preached the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Unless we speak of Jesus, we can make people think, but lives won't be changed. We don't know exactly what, the Philip, what Philip told the Ethiopian. I suspect that as well as telling him that Jesus was the lamb who willingly gave his life, he also took him to Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5. Speaks of Jesus. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. They're verses that speak of our need for forgiveness. They tell us that Jesus gave his life for each one of us, and at the heart of the gospel is our response to that message. Philip knows his Bible. He can explain the good news of Jesus. He must also have invited the Ethiopian to make a response because this man can't wait to be baptised as a visible sign that Jesus has washed his sins away. This is a man whose life is changed. He goes away rejoicing. And Jesus does still change lives today. He fills hearts with joy when they respond to him. If that's something you've never done, then 
Why not copy the example of the Ethiopian? Try reading the Bible. Ask a Christian to read it with you. Ask them to help you understand it. Be open. Jesus can change your life too. All it needs is a leap of faith. For those of us who are Christians, Richard's just reminded us that we're in the middle of the time of year, your kingdom come, when the Archbishop of Canterbury encourages us to invite God to be at work by praying, come Holy Spirit. It's a prayer that God will always answer. It opens exciting possibilities. But are we willing to pray such a prayer? Are we prepared to have our lives turned upside down, rearranged, reshaped? Are we ready for all God might call us to do as his witnesses? Are we prepared, like Philip, to see God at work in ways that we can't predict or control? And alongside that question comes another question. Are we available? Are we willing to actually step out and do something? To put ourselves in God's hands, to take that risk so that he can work through us? Just take a moment to consider the invitation that God offers us. He knows our weakness, but we're invited to go in his strength, to be encouraged as we see lives change through the name of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's just take a moment of quiet. And in the silence, are you willing to pray, come Holy Spirit, to invite God to be at work, to say to God, here I am, use me. If you are, then just take time in the silence now to come to God and to make those prayers your own. Maybe as you sit here now, you know that you actually need to make that leap of faith. Perhaps you need to just come to God and say, I know that Jesus died for me. Please forgive me. Please come into my life through the Holy Spirit and help me to live for you. Amen.